from it. And it's kind of a cool story, so it's not that much shame. But if we, if we go deeper into my past, there are more wicked, more heavier things. Things with more com- consequences, like the times that I fooled around with other girls before I married Joanna. Or the time that as an adult, I, I literally blew thousands of dollars on a form of gambling. And I look back at that and I just feel shame and I feel embarrassment to even share that with you. And maybe for you, it's not something that has that you've done, but maybe that's something that has been done to you. Maybe an abuse, maybe something in your family that was broken and you still feel the past echoing to the present, still affecting you. Or maybe it's not an event, maybe it's a season of life, maybe an addiction that had its tentacles all around you and you still feel its grim, grimy fingerprints all over your life. Your, your life has never been the same because of that season in that um, addiction. And so for me, for, for on and off throughout my teen years and even into my adult years, I had to fight pornography or different forms of lust and I still feel the effects and um, today. In this whole room, we're full of regrets and we could all go around and take turns and just share different things that are in our past that we just, it still affects us today. And here's the question as we go to our text. Does God have anything for that? Of course he forgives us. We, we know that. I mean, that's Christianity 101. He can forgive us of our sins, but what about our past that still affects us today? Is there any redemption for that? All of us know about families also or people who are in a mess, kind of like all of us have been in a mess in different times, and they rush off into a relationship. Have you guys ever met someone who rushed into a relationship hoping that that relationship will just fix all their issues? Maybe they're economically messed up or they're struggling with addictions or things are going on and they hope, maybe if I just marry this person, everything will be okay. And as you guys know, most of the time, that doesn't help at all, right? It doesn't go well. It doesn't do the trick. But what if there was a marriage that would solve everything, that literally would be the escape. And if someone ran into that marriage, it really would solve everything that is wrong and redeem every wrong in their life, past, present, and future. And that's what we're gonna see in our text today. And so here's the main point, if, you, if you're a note taker. No matter what you've done or what's been done, marriage to God will redeem everything. No matter what you've done or what's been done, Marriage to God will redeem everything. Now, we're going to be in Hosea, as you've heard. And I just want to remind you that this book is a plea to the people of Israel to turn back to God after hundreds of years of cheating on him. So God is the one who's the victim, and he's been giving chance after chance, come back to me. And so he has this actual marriage with his people, and they've been cheating on him with other gods and basically rejecting his authority. And last week, we saw that in earlier part of Hosea chapter 2, God's going to do, God's going to fence the people in so that he can have them to himself. And now, the last passage ended up very abruptly, and now we're going to see the rest of the chapter and kind of the resolution. Now, verse 14, as you saw, starts with the word therefore. And whenever you see the word therefore, you know that whatever follows should make sense in light of what has just been said. But let's look at verse 13 and see if this therefore really makes sense. We're going to go back to verse 13 from last week. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. So Israel is cheating on God. And so you would think that what follows would be abandonment. 
Because Israel has abandoned God, that God is now them. That therefore is so important. Why is it there? Well, let's see what he says. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. He doesn't abandon her. He allures her. He woos her. He pursues her. This is a surprising therefore because you would think that he would say, I'm done with you because you've been done with me. And yet God surprisingly pursues her. And what does he do? He brings her to the wilderness. And if you've read your Bible at all, you know that the wilderness represents a lot of things. But typically, God takes his people into the wilderness to purify them, to to get them away from the distractions and set them apart for themselves. But we also know that the wilderness is not some nice place. People won't be like, hey, yeah, for my vacation, I'm going to go to the desert, right? People don't usually do that, right? They go to the opposite where there's amenities. There's no amenities in the desert at this time. And so think about the desert as also refining painful place. The Lord's discipline is not always easy, and he's setting them apart so that what, what the text says that he can speak to her heart. That's the, what the Hebrew literally says. He will speak tenderly to her. In Hebrew it says, I will speak to her heart. He's not, he's not strong-arming her. He's not grabbing her. Listen to me. You're going to follow me. You're going to obey me like a good wife. He's wooing her and calling, him to, calling her to himself. Now, each verse that we're going to cover, up to verse 23... I'm going to do a little highlight of what God is doing. And so in verse 14, God is removing separation, the separation that Israel created, and he's redeeming communication. He's initiating it. He's not sticking back and saying, all right, all right, when you come to me, then I'll make, no, he's actually pursuing her and bringing her to himself. Now let's look at verse 15. He's going to go further, things that he's going to do for 15. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. Verse 15 actually reverses what happens in verse 12. So we're going to go back again. We're going to do this a few more times going back to the previous section. Verse 12. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. Now, Israel was, at this time, it's really important to remember, Israel was prospering economically. It wasn't like things were going bad and they're like, oh, I guess God is judging us. Actually, things were going really well and they thought, therefore, God was blessing them. God must be pleased because my life is good. And so therefore, they started to uh, give their life, uh, their hearts to other idols. And they would uh, dedicate these vineyards and all their produce and all their fruits over to these other gods and give them the, the due. Give them the credit. And so what God does in verse 12 is I'm going to strip all those away. So you have nothing left but me. I'm going to take away all these things you're putting your hope in so that you only have me. And I'm going to give you a new start and I'm going to provide you. And vineyards here represent not only provision, but also celebration. And think about, there's wedding imagery all throughout this passage. There's a celebration. We are recommitting ourselves to you. I am committing myself to you. And we're going to see how Israel will ultimately respond to. Now in verse 15, he also mentions this word, the valley of Achor. Does that sound familiar? Valley of Achor. I know if you're not familiar with the Bible, that sounds very strange. What's the Valley of Achor? Now, in Joshua chapter 7, God commands Israel to take over this city that many of you guys have probably heard called Jericho. We sing about Jericho every night with our children and march around, if you guys know that song. And 
what happened in Jericho is that God said, hey, I want you to set apart that entire city for myself. Now, there's going to be other cities where you take the plunder for yourself, but this one is dedicated completely to me. Nobody t- goes home with any plunder. And yet Achan, he didn't trust God. He wanted him, it wanted extra for himself, so he stashed some under his tent. And what happened is this removed God's hand and blessing from Israel. And the next time they fought against a very small city, Ai, they got their tails kicked. And many people died. And eventually Achan is found out. And after he's found out, he's judged and his whole family is, is destroyed. And that whole area was called the Valley of Achor. In other words, that the, the word also means trouble, the Valley of Trouble. And if you go to Israel today, the Valley of Achor is not very far from Jerusalem. And so it would be something that people would see. And so it was constant, this constant reminder for the people of a stain in their past. It, it was a forever stain of how they didn't trust God, that they didn't put their hope in him and they wanted more. And when God said, hey, I love you, but this is for me, they said, no, 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 I want more. And so this was constantly in their their background. But, but what does God do here? He doesn't say, I will remove the valley acor. He will rename it. He will redeem it. And instead of being something that he just makes you forget, oh, you know, that's fine now. That's in the past. No, no. He actually renames it into a door of hope. God takes a stain in their past, something very, very dark, shameful, and he turns it into hope. And that's what only God can do. And we're going to go more and to see how he does that. Israel at this time was actually being like Achan. We are often like Achan. We often think, I need this. And God says, no, 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 I love you. And we have this thought that comes to our mind. If God really loved me, then he would let me have that. You know what I'm saying? Do you guys ever think that? If God really I should have that. And Israel was just being like Achan. And God is telling them, I'm going to transform it. The second part of this passage, he says this, and there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at a time when she came out of the land of Egypt. So as a result of uh, these vineyards and this this bridal uh, situation, uh, uh, this new wedding, God is blessing him, blessing them with joy and restoring to them passion. It's going to be like Jeremiah 2.2, you'll see it on the screen. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth. Your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. And so what, what God is doing, he's restoring to Israel the emotional sense of being a bride, a brand new bride, just like on a honeymoon, just when God first rescued her from Egypt. And so in verse 15, God is removing shame and he's redeeming hope and passion. As we're going to continue going down our passage, what you're going to see as the pattern is you're going to see some marriage language and then the result of that marriage. And then some more marriage language and the result of that marriage. Again, the main point of this passage that we're going to see is that this marriage is the one that will redeem everything. It changes everything. This is the solution to everything. Being married to this God spiritually, it will change everything. Now, for us to go forward, God needs to purify the marriage. So look at verse 16. And in that day, declares Yahweh, or the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. Well, what's going on here? This is kind of a strange passage. Well, what was going on is, is kind of like this. Imagine someone creates a religion that goes viral and trends and everyone's into it. Okay? And let's say the name of this God, of this fake religion that is created, 
let's say his name was Daddy. Okay, Daddy is his name. And what was happening is that all of a sudden people started calling God Daddy in here. Now, would it be true to say God is our Daddy? Yes, that, that's a true thing. But it would be confusing. So let's say you, you hear about people putting up shrines and, and, and going crazy about daddy. Daddy's everywhere, okay? And then, and then we start praying in here, and some, someone says, oh, dear daddy. Th that would start some confusion, wouldn't it be? Because of how strong that cultural background would be with this religion of daddy, right? It, it, that's what was going on. See, the word my Baal is just another word for my master or my lord or my husband. And so what was going on is that people would start to, to synchronize or try to, instead of saying Yahweh, which was the personal name that God gave to his people, he said, hey, this is my name that only you can use for me. This is my personal name, which means I'm committed to you. It represents all of my attributes of who I am, and it's for my beloved people. Only you can know me as Yahweh. And instead of you calling, him by, calling God by his name, they started using these other popular names and cultures. And they would say, well, well, it's still God, right? I'm saying Lord, I'm saying Master, I'm saying Husband. But so what happened is they started to kind of, kind of bring in the culture into their religious services. Well, we have this idea of Israel cheating on God. We kind of think about them just kind of going totally crazy and worshiping other Baals. And, and, and they did that at points. They would sacrifice on the altar for Molech and kill their kids. And, and they would do stuff like that. But many of the times, it wasn't that sinister and that obvious. A lot of times, Israel would serve other gods by just kind of just, just shifting some of their culture, shifting some of their um, festivals, shifting their services and the different things that did that were Jewish. That's, that's a good thing for us to keep in mind, right? That we could subtly start to, to, to mold what we do and start just bringing in the culture. And we're still being Christians. We're still doing Christian things. But we just kind of subtly just become more and more like the world. And th that was what was going on in Israel's day here. So how will they be pure and dedicated only to Yahweh? Well, look at verse 17. He's going to show us how he's going to do it. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And so God, if he's going to have this pure, faithful relationship, he needs to have a pure and faithful bride. And what is he going to do? He's going to do it. This passage, and later on we'll see, suggests that he's going to do something in their heart. He's going to change something so that he will provide what he requires. He's going to help them be ready so that they can be pure and set apart for him. And so verse 16 and 17, God is removing lovers and restoring purity, redeeming purity. Now here's the first result that comes from this marriage. If you look at verse 18, make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things on the, of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and the war from the land, and I'll make you lie down in safety. Now, this language sounds a little foreign, but does that sound at all familiar to you? Now, if you read the Bible some, you would notice that that kind of sounds like some Genesis language from the beginning. And also, if you read um, further about Noah's covenant, it kind of sounds like Noah's covenant. What is, what is God doing here? What is he trying to do here? Well, please understand this. Ultimately, God, what, what we mean when God redeems the world 
is that first and foremost, he's redeeming people relationally to him. He's redeeming sinners to be reconciled to the Father. That's what Jesus does. He forgives sins. But as a result of his redemption, it overflows into blessing to all creation. See, if you look at this language, it's talking about creeping things, right? That, like animals. And he's talking about all of heaven. And he also talks about abolishing the bow. So we're talking about everything. And so what happens when we read the Bible, what, what we see is that in the fall, when man rejected God, the result of that was that we had vertical brokenness, our relationship with God, our horizontal brokenness, our, bro- our, we, our brokenness with our relationship with people and also with animals and with creation, and then also individual brokenness inside of us. We are physically not as we ought to be. Our emotions are not as we ought to be, as they ought to be. Our minds, our bodies, uh, amen? Some of you, the bodies, you're, you're not feeling it right, right? Everything about our creation horizontally, vertically, and individually has been broken and tainted. And so what this passage is showing, hey, when God brings redemption, it's going to be total. It's going to be everything. He gives a glimpse of this further in, into the future. Look at Isaiah eleven six through 8. This is the New Living Translation just because it brings a little clarity on some of the language that can be a little, a little hazy for, for our audiences. In that day, the wolf and the lamb will lie, live together, and the leopard will lie down with the baby goat. No, notice all these, all these animals and, and these people who would normally just destroy each other. <laughs> the calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion, and the little child will lead them all. The cow will graze near the bear. The cub and the calf will lie down together. The lion will eat hay like a cow. The baby will play safely near the hole of a cobra. Yes, a little child will put its hand in the nest of deadly snakes without harm. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? Now, we don't see that right now, so I wouldn't recommend you try that with your kids, new parents. But but, but what God is showing us is, hey, this is what's going to be. You're not going to just go to heaven and be with me. That's true for sure. But I'm going to make all things new, everything in creation. And then in verse 18, we already saw that abolish the bow. He's going to bring peace to the world. He's going to bring complete peace. <clears throat> and the peace that he brings is a shalom kind of peace. And this, that word shalom is, is the word for, for all things are as they ought to be. He's going to bring that kind of peace where there's no more, no more war, which is good news for us because right now we're on the brink of war with Iran. And that's going to be terrible if we go into war. This is good news. When Jesus comes back and he's going to make all things new as a result of this marriage, there will be no more war. Isn't that going to be amazing? I don't know what the news will have to say anymore. No war. Amen? So verse 18, God is removing the curse and redeeming shalom. Now we're going to see another marriage kind of text. Verse 19 and 20 shows us what kind of marriage we will have. One that will last forever and is super intimate. Look at verse 19. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. Um, Can I ask you, honey, to bring me my water? And I know this sounds weird, but I feel, I feel like kind of attacked right now. It's weird. I feel weak. I don't feel power. I usually, I almost always feel power when I preach. So could you pray with me again? I don't know what it is. And uh, Father... I don't know what's going on, but I, I don't feel your hand upon me. And I know that at the end of the day, no matter what I say, if your spirit doesn't do something, nothing can happen. 
It doesn't matter what I say. If your spirit doesn't bless it, it doesn't, it just bounces off our hearts. And so I ask for your presence and I ask for your blessing and your power. And I pray that you clear up my throat. Lord, I know you have something for us. And I just pray that you use me now, not because I'm worthy, but because you're worthy. We want to see you, Lord. So I pray, move right now. Thank you for hearing me, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for praying with me. I know that's weird. Most people wouldn't do that. I don't want to be up here just talking to you. You don't need that, right? Just, yeah, we have talk radio for that. We, we want to we meet with God. We want to hear from him. And so if I don't have his power, I don't want to say anything. Betrothal is actually kind of a funny word. We don't really use the word betrothal anymore. It's kind of fancy. But a little, it's a little different than engagement. In their um, context, betrothal had money involved in it. It was, a, it was near guarantee. If you're betrothed to someone, you're not, you're not jilting them on the wedding day. That's, that's not something that happens. And so God is promising he's going to betroth them forever, which is great news for any of you guys who grew up with divorced families. Because many people feel very, very intimidated by the permanence of marriage because maybe they will let go. Maybe one day it will fall apart. Maybe one day one of the spouse will die. But what does he say? I will betroth you to me forever. Forever. And I will betroth you, me, in righteousness and justice. Now, he's going to list five different words that is going to describe the way he's going to go about this marriage. And this is really, really important because it's not just a regular marriage. It's a very, very special marriage, and it's gonna, we're going to see more. So let's look at these five words. Notice first, it's the word righteousness and justice. This is so beautiful because what, what God is showing here flips on its head our typical mindset of righteousness and justice. Because typically we think righteousness and justice is something we bring to the table, and, and we're good, and we're morally right enough, and then God then will receive us. But what does God say here? He is bringing it to the table. He's the one who is doing it. And we're going to see this clearer in the New Testament also, that, that, that we get his track record. And so when we stand at the altar with God, figuratively speaking, we're not standing at the altar and we're not wearing a white dress. And I know, guys, that's weird. We're not going to actually wear a white dress, okay? But, but, the, but, the, but the, um, what am I trying to say? It's uh, signifying. It's signifying the reality that we're going to be pure. But we're not going to be standing up there and be like, man, I'm, I was pure for you. No, no, no. God, 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 God is going to be holding us and saying, I made you pure for me. I made you righteous. You don't deserve to be here, but I made you to be here. I set you apart, which is really good news because for all of us, especially as the sexual revolution has ravaged our country and we have more and more brokenness, we have so many people who cheat on spouses, we have so many, so much brokenness, porn is rampant and it's, it's infiltrating everything. We're, a lot of us just, just have a lot of that brokenness and that dirt and that junk. And it's so good that, that those who can be with him aren't those who are good enough or clean enough, that he makes it available. The next two words are really important words also, steadfast love and mercy. Now, mercy is a word that we're pretty familiar and is pretty consistent with what the, old, the Bible says and also us. You're not getting what you deserve. God is withholding the judgment due to us. But steadfast love is a unique word. This is the word hesed, all right? Hesed. Can you say hesed? Hesed. Hesed with a little phlegm. Hesed. 
and what, what, what hesed is, it's if you did a little Bible study throughout the Old Testament, whenever you saw hesed, hesed is a very special covenantal word. It's not something that you're like, man, I just hesed that burrito. It's so good, right? Like, right, we use the word love very, very flippantly. But this word is a very strong covenantal love. And if you look at a lot of the instances of this word, it would come up in times where God is being faithful when they are not. He is loving when they're rejecting. It's a, a permanent kind of love. It's an intentional love. It's not a wishy-washy love of I love you today because I like you. I love you today because you're good looking. I love you today because you're good to me. No, it's like I love you and I'm setting my gaze on you and setting my affections on you. That, that, this word is, is extremely intentional. That's why <clears throat> most Old Testament translations don't say just love. They say steadfast love because that word steadfast is trying to denote this idea of like no matter what, I'm in it. No matter what. Now let's look at this last word in verse 20. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. I love this word, faithful. Of all the qualities of a partner that is needed to have a healthy marriage, faithfulness is certainly one of them. And of all the qualities that Israel needed to bring to the table in a marriage, faithfulness was one that they did not have. They were so quick to cheat, so quick to run away. And if you read the Old Testament, you know the story that even almost immediately after they are rescued and they're worshiping Yahweh, they cheat on him within days. So quick, so prone to wonder, Lord, we feel it. And we are like them also. And yet God is the one who is faithful. He's not the one who will stray. And this is such a good word for us and reminds me of 2 Timothy 2.13. One of the sweetest passages in the Bible. One that I go to all the time. And I hope you can put this on your heart. If we are unfaithful, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. Isn't that one of the sweetest news? One of the sweetest passages in the Bible. He is faithful even when we're faithless. Now, the second part of verse 20. It talks about them knowing the Lord. And the theme throughout Hosea is that they forgot the Lord. They forgot him. And instead of forgetting him, they're going to know him. But this word knowing is a very intimate word. It's not like, oh, yeah, I know about Yahweh. I read about him once or I heard about him. I heard this. No, no, they're going to know him intimately. And as a result of knowing him, they'll become like him. And so the power impl- impl- powerful implication of this passage that we're going to see more unpacked throughout the Bible is that what God requires, he will provide. What he asks of his bride, what he brings to the table, he will start to transform into his bride to be like him. As we get to grow in the knowledge of him. We see this in Ezekiel 36. We also see this in Jeremiah 31. And there's a New Testament passage that really, really highlights this. Titus 3, 3 through 5. And I'm going to ask you to read this with me. Just because I think it's really powerful. Would you read it with me? Oh, man, this is going to be tough because it's partially cut off, all right? So let's, let's see how well you can, you can uh, fill in the blank. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So what God requires, he provides for his bride. 
he transforms her. So verse 19 and 20, we see God is removing obstacles and redeeming faithfulness. Now here's the second result of this kind of marriage section. Remember, God was, Israel was looking to others to provide provision. And Israel was actually suffering a famine out of the Lord's discipline to set them apart for himself. Um, verse 21. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. What does he mean he will answer? He's going to answer what? He's going to answer prayers. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain the wine, the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. Now, there's some complicated things in there that we won't get into, but what you can understand is that for a while, after God started to discipline them and set them apart again and had fenced them in, they would pray and pray, God, send us rain, because this is an agricultural uh, economy. They need, they need God. They need the elements to provide for them. God, give us rain. Nothing. God, will you hear us? Nope. And so what's going to happen is during this redemption process, as a result of their commitment and as Yahweh's commitment to them, God will hear their prayers and provide for them. And so God is removing famine in verse 21 through 22, and he's redeeming provision. So now let's, let's kind of go over this whole section and to see what does this marriage do? What does it look like to be committed to a God like this and receive his commitment, his love? Well, verse 14, you're going to see a... a Conclusion here. God is removing separation and redeeming communication. God removes shame and he redeems hope and passion. God removes lovers and redeems purity. God removes the curse and redeems shalom. God removes obstacles and redeems faithfulness. God removes famine and redeems provision. And then we're going to see in a minute as we wrap up, God removes rejection and redeems family. Now, I started off asking in the beginning, what could God do about our past? How can he redeem all the different broken things of our past that, that still shame us today? Those moments that we want to bury and never see or hear from again. And hopefully, as you've seen in this passage, no matter what you've done or what's been done, marriage to God redeems everything. 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 And even as I say that, I know one of the greatest lies that you could hear is, is this. Yeah, that's probably true for them, but not for me. The more and more I've been ministering to people who are unchurched, that's the number one lie that I hear from them. They'll, they'll say, yeah, Sam, that sounds so good, but not for me. That's just not for me. I want that to be true, but it's, I just know it's not. And you know what that is? That's the devil telling them, oh, it's not for you. God, God rescues people, but not people like you. And I, I just want to destroy that lie. It is for you. It is for you if you want it to be. No matter what you've done, please hear me. Earlier, we saw in verse 13 that God doesn't just remove the past, but he transforms it into hope. He takes the valleys of Achor, of our past, and he turns them into hope. How does, that, how does he do that? How does he do that? Not just forgive us, but how can he turn something so dark and turn into hope? Well, I think it's like this. Because of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, all of us who trust in Christ one day, when we're joined with him forever in the new heavens and new earth, the beauty and the grandness of being with him forever is going to have this reverse cascading, overflowing effect. That every day we spend with him in eternity will have this retroactive effect that will take the most dark points of our life, 
the most agonizing moments, the most shameful moments, and it will somehow it will turn them into somewhat of a glory. Every day we step with Jesus, the, the darkness of our past will just remind us how good we have it now in the presence. The brokenness of our past will show us how far Christ has taken us from. And we can look back, even, even on that day, that day that you may have in your mind, even that worst day, and we can think, oh, thank you, Jesus. And in some way, that day can even be a gift. Even that worst day of your life can be a gift in light of all that will come. If there is no resurrection, if there is no eternity, this doesn't work. But because we will be with him forever, everything in our past will be eventually redeemed and turned into a glory, even the darkest days. This sounds too good to be true, I know it does, but it is true. This is as true as I am standing here in the flesh and there's someone in front of you. There's nothing truer than this. And like I said in the beginning, we all know about those people who put their hopes into a relationship or a marriage thinking that will solve everything. This is actually a marriage that will solve everything. It really will. It will redeem everything. And so let me, let me say this to a few of you. I was praying through this. I feel like there's some of you that have let something in your past define you. And you may be forgiven of it. And you may have survived because you're here. But it still has its effects all over you. You've let it redefine who you are. And I just want you to hear from you. Hear from the Lord through me. Just to tell you, he wants to give you a new day. He wants to give you a new life. And whatever that happened in the past... He wants to transform it. You don't have to be defined anymore by what happened to your parents or what happened to you that one night or when you did that one thing or that season of addiction. You do not have to be defined by that anymore. God truly will redeem you and desires to. So if you have that lie in your heart and it's still affecting you, just, just give it over to him today. And come talk with one of us. Talk to your DNA this week. Let us pray with you. Let us, let, let, let us uh, don't fight anymore alone. Don't let something in the past forever mark you. It doesn't have to be that way. Jesus went to great lengths so that it doesn't have to be that way. Amen. His resurrecting power is stronger than your past. Now to, the, to anybody here who's not trusting in Christ, maybe you grew up in the church, maybe you know church language, but you're actually not following Jesus, I, I want you to notice that this point I say over and over again, marriage to God will redeem everything. If you're not committed to him, these redemptive powers, these redemptive realities will not be true of you. Why would they be? Right? Like, sh should other wives get the benefit of being married to me? No. <laughs> That's, that's weird. That's, that doesn't work. It's his people who get the redemptive benefits. And so if you're not trusting in him, you can. All of your past can be forgiven. Literally everything can be forgiven. Can you imagine that? How many people in the world can say that literally everything in their past is clean? We can say that only in Christ. And if all you got to do is reject your control and surrender to Jesus and let him be the Lord, and let him be your righteousness. Let him be your purity. And put your hope in him. And you can have all that I said and even more that I can't even explain well. <laughs> he can redeem you as he's redeemed me. And one day you can be with him forever. We'd love to baptize you. We'd love to tell you more about that. So please talk to us. For us Christians, for us hoping in Christ, let's end on verse 23. I will sow her for myself in the land. 
and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Now, real quick, do you remember in chapter 1, God is asking Hosea to name his children certain names so that as they walk around, they're a reminder of what the judgment is going to happen if they don't turn. And so one of the names was no mercy. And you guys all know I have a daughter named Mercy. And so as Mercy walks, it wouldn't be Mercy, it would be no mercy. As no mercy walks around, you'd be like, hey, come here, no mercy. And the moment you hear no mercy, it would be a reminder. God's not going to have mercy on him on us unless we turn from him, turn to him. And, um, and there, there was another child that would be named not my people. And so every time you heard that name as the kid grew up, not my people, you're like, man, I just don't want to say that name anymore because it's a reminder that you will be rejected as you've rejected him. And what, what God's showing us in verse 23 is that God is going to reverse that. He says this, you are my people and you shall say you are my God. And so in 23, we see that he's removing the rejection and he's redeeming family. Have you guys ever heard this statement, you are my people, you are my God? Does that sound familiar? See, the Bible actually ends with that. Look at Revelation 21, 2 through 5. One of the last phrases in the Bible. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he also said, Write these these down. For these words are trustworthy and true. Amen. That one of the sweetest things you'll ever read in your life. Notice the word prepared. God will do the one who's preparing. He's the one who provides what he requires. And he will make us ready for the wedding altar. And so, so right now, this redemption is in part. We still have aches and pains. We still have hearts that can go wayward. We still have broken relationships. But he's starting the redeeming process even now. And one day, that will be our reality, church. Please don't lo- let lose sight of this. That will be our reality. There will be a day where we'll never cry again. There will be a day where we're going to see him face to face. And there's no more faith. There's no more hope because he's just right there. That's our day. That will come soon. And no matter what you've done or whatever has been done to you, God will redeem it now in part and fully that day. And so, please God, prepare us for that day. And we should all say, come Lord Jesus. Can you say, come Lord Jesus with me? Come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, for being with me. And, and Lord, thank you for these realities. And I'm begging you that these truths that have been heard before by many of us would become fresh. And that we would put our hope and trust in you. That in that day when you're going to make all things new. Help us live lives that only make sense in light of that day. In light of the future. Lord, if there's anyone in here who is feeling the shame and the stain and the influence of their past, and they're not believing your redemption is strong enough, I pray that you would just show them that you are. 
and that you'd bring healing and you would bring hope and you'd restore to them all that the enemy has stolen. All the years that the locust has stolen from Israel, you said that you would redeem. Would you do the same for everyone in here? Well in them hope. And I rebuke the lies of the evil one who would say it's not for them. Maybe for others. Maybe for Sam, but not for them. I rebuke that lie. And I pray that all of us would receive these promises. All of us who are trusting in you. And if anyone is not, they would put their trust in you so that all these promises can be true for them too. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.